Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. It's, um, it is Wednesday of week six. Outstanding work, everyone here. You made it this far, only five to go. Absolutely. You do know that Dr. Bond is here to finish up the sermon that he started yesterday, which was kind of really a continuation of a sermon he started in January, right? It's not that it, it well, that's enough of that. So we're, 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 just, we're just glad you're here. I, I also want to welcome, if you would, uh, his wife Sally Bond is with us this evening, so if you welcome her. And then a couple of folks that you need to know um, who have been around for a long time. Uh, Wes Taylor used to be the business manager at the school, was when I arrived in 95. Would you wave your hand and you guys welcome Wes? <laughs> and Jadal Grab, sitting next to him, graduated from Nazarene Bible College in 72. And has since then uh, is the founder and the director, uh, the founder and the facilitator of Voice of the Truth Ministries. It is a ministry that uh, is designed to reach to Arab-speaking people. In the course of the 30-some years that he's been involved, over 250 Arabic-speaking Christian congregations have been established in the U.S. And a, and a number of other things. So if you'll welcome Jad. <laughs> Like we did yesterday, I want us to begin with a song. It just helps my heart get here. So stand and let's sing the song of praise. Two, three, four. There's a word to the song that I want us to make our prayer. Go back, Josh, just one slide. Hosanna, say it with me. Come have your way among us. Say it with me again. Come have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. We welcome them here. We welcome them here. All those people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Yeah. Thank you, my dear brother, and thanks to all of you for being here again tonight. I just uh, didn't realize this, these services weren't required. I thought you had to be here, and so you're here because you want to be here tonight. I'm kidding you a little, I know that. I'm a long-time Nazarene. All of my life been a Nazarene. Don't believe that the only important thing that happens in this world happens on our little private acre. We're part of the church of Jesus Christ, whose business is about bringing the kingdom of God into the world. So if I sound like I'm Nazarene and believe that's to the exclusion of those of you who might not be, don't, don't believe that because I embrace you as my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Church of the Nazarene. I believe in her doctrines. I believe in the doctrine of entire sanctification, the doctrine of holiness as Wesley understood it. We understand it because, one, it's biblical. Two, many of the greatest saints of the Church have testified to having experienced something similar to what we talk about as entire sanctification, not using our language maybe, but many of them testified to it. Three, I believe in it because I still believe it meets the deepest need of the human heart. And four, I believe in it because 
I believe I've experienced it. And I testify to that hiding behind the cross, resting in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, my wonderful Lord. I believe we have a tremendous responsibility to try to get this doctrine down to the level where people live and make it as practical as possible. Make it livable. It has not always been that way. That's my experience at least. So at this stage of my life, I'm looking back a bit saying, what would I do differently if I could do it all over again? And I began a little bit of that last night. In fact, I, some of you heard this earlier in, in January in the morning, and then I had a little problem in the evening chapel. But um, I, um, I couch my remarks in one of the great verses from the pen of the great Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Last night I, I gave a little preamble to some reflections and observations and I talked about four or five different things last night. Tonight I think I've got about four left and I'm going to get it done one way or the other. All right. I uh, have President's permission to go as long as I need to and uh, well not really. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding you. He didn't give me that permission and I'm I'm an old academic guy myself, so I know how important it is to get you back to the classroom. What I like to talk about when I talk about the doctrine of holiness and fleshed in human life is to talk about the relationship. Last night I, I began by saying the years have taught me that it is the relationship that is of ultimate importance, not the experiences one may have in life. Those experiences, new birth, that ushers you into the relationship. And as you live in that relationship, ultimately you realize you have a deeper need, a deeper problem, and God deals with that problem through entire sanctification. But it's all a lifelong of relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I said, the relationship is all about Jesus. It's about living in Jesus. It's about living for Jesus. It's about living like Jesus through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus himself. Then I mentioned the fact that the relationship is not about perfectionism. I could linger there again tonight because many of us wrestle with that issue, and I know I've repeated myself some, and, and I, I do that without apology. It kind of plays into what I think is an educational philosophy, and that is that re reiteration reinforces might have heard it before. It doesn't hurt to reinforce it in the minds and hearts of those who've heard it before. Then I talked about the fact that the relationship is not about legalism. That's a part of the human situation, it seems to me, to think we can do something that will earn God's favor. The relationship is all about grace. Hallelujah. And I almost stepped into one last night that would have, I, I would not have had time to finish even when I did finally. The relationship is not about sinless perfection. Now we Wesleyans have often been accused of believing in sinless perfection because we do believe by God's grace it is possible to live without sinning. Sinning as a willful transgression of a known law of God. Wesley added a couple of words there that kind of narrowed the definition. 
Instead of sinning, sin is, is transgression of the law, it is a willful transgression of a known law of God, trying to clarify how it is possible to live without sin. But John Wesley himself never used the term sinless perfection. Have, have you read the plain account of Christian perfection? If you haven't, you ought to have it in your pocket, carrying it around, memorizing it. Well, I, I'm uh, at least tentatively scheduled at this point to maybe teach the Doctrine of Holiness class next spring. So those of you who are around, you'll, you'll have it by that time, I'm sure. But in the account, Wesley raises the question, is the term sinless perfection proper? And he answered this by saying, I do not approve of that expression. Well, regardless of the fact that we don't believe it, I have to tell you that this was an issue with which I wrestled often in my early years as a Christian. Because a single act of sin would bring defeat. And so the relationship sort of degenerated into a kind of spiritual game where if you land on the wrong square, you've got to go clear back to the beginning and start all over again. So in my frustration, Jesus spoke to me. He said, I want to liberate you from this false thinking that's keeping you on this spiritual roller coaster. And he implanted in my mind and in my heart and in my life the truth of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I wish someone had taught me this as a young guy. Pastors, those of you who will be pastors, help your young people particularly learn how to deal with sin if it happens in their lives because here's what the Word of God says. I write this to you that you sin not. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And He is the atonement for our sins, and not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. If that verse hasn't gotten into your heart, I hope it does. Because it's like a great rock to which you can anchor the relationship. It is the Word of the Living Lord Himself. Let me just, just hammer on a couple of things here quickly. First of all, John is saying... We are not to sin. That's the language of Scripture in the whole divine economy, every age of the divine economy. God's word is sin not. Terrible airplane crash last week in Poland or in Russia, actually, that, that took the life of the president of Poland. You've read and heard about that. And many of the key leaders wasn't on the schedule to crash that plane. It's kind of the way it is with sin in our lives. It's not on the schedule. It's not on the agenda. We do not plan on sinning. This is, this is what John says, though, that is so beautiful. We are not to sin, but if anybody does sin, it's the if of possibility, not the if of probability. And there's a world of difference in it. Sin may occur in the life of a saved and sanctified believer. If it does, how do we handle it? Two things not to do. Do not deny the possibility of living a holy life simply because you've committed a single act of sin. 
That's the enemy's plan for each of us, to deny the reality of holiness in human beings. That's his plan because it's God's plan that we be holy. That's his call to us. Be holy even as I, the Lord your God, am holy. I think I mentioned E. Stanley Jones last night, great Methodist missionary, statesman he was. And uh, I'm fond of reading after him. He, I think I said he, he's written 35 or 40 books. Gone now, of course, in heaven. But uh, he had one little book that I, I read in a hurry, but it captured my attention, Victorious Living. I think it's the name of the book. But in that, he says, Victorious Living does not mean that we may not occasionally lapse into a wrong act, which may be called a sin. At this point, we may have lost a skirmish, but it does not mean that we may not still win the battle. We may even lose the battle and still win a war. Victorious living can be consistent with occasional failure, though he's quick to say he realizes he might be opening the door for such lapses, and that would be dangerous and weakening, and we must not make any provision for that in our minds. So, I think that's pretty profound insight. I, I believe in that. And secondly, I would say don't let that single sin set you adrift. I just think there are too many Christians today, and even within the Church of the Nazarene, too many who have little joy, not much vital victory in their lives. Why? Maybe because they've, felt to, to, they've failed to deal with sin. And the church has some responsibility because we've sounded loudly and clearly the message, sin not, but we've never yet taken it upon ourselves to be serious about teaching holiness people how to deal with sin. Sin not, here it is, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Glory be to God speaks to the Father in our defense. He's at the right hand of the Father now, not to state the case against us. He's there to state the case for us. Did you get that? Let it get into your mind and into your heart. He is there to speak to the Father in our defense. How do we deal with sin? Here it is. The moment we are convicted by the Holy Spirit and we realize that we've sinned, we turn immediately to God. Don't have to wait till next Sunday service to get to the altar or anything like that. You turn immediately to God. You confess the sin. You forsake the sin. You renounce the sin. You make no provision for that sin to occur in your life again. And by faith believe that you are forgiven. And you pick up at that point and you move straight on with God's full blessing on your life. So you don't have to go back to square one and start all over again. <laughs> Why? Because you're living in relationship. Relationships are daily. You have to work at them. Ask my wife about that. Living with me is like she does, you know. You just have to work at it. So holiness in humankind is not sinless perfection. We need to say that loudly and clearly, it seems to me. Number six is one that I mentioned last night, and I will not touch on that again. But it's a daily matter. The relationship is daily. It, 
life just keeps coming at you all the time in all of your relationships. You go through good times, bad times, on the mountaintop, in the valley. That's what relationships are all about. So you just have to keep plowing ahead, knowing that God has proffered grace for every day. Beautiful little verse in James where he says simply, God gives more grace. It's there for the taking, for the asking. Grace to be adequate in every situation. Hallelujah. Number seven, the relationship is intensely personal, but not private, not solitary. Let me say this as clearly as I can. To live a Christ-like life in this world is too difficult to do by yourself. Monks have tried that, going out, you know, into the desert or wherever to be lost and alone. Sally and I are reading through our devotional now, and this morning we read from the 17th of John, the great prayer of Jesus, in which he prayed for you and for me in that prayer as much as he did for those first century Christians. And in that great prayer, he specifically prayed that we, we might not be of the world, but still be in the world, so we cannot separate ourselves from this world, but he wants us to be holy even in this world in which we live. So, the relationship means that if I'm going to fulfill my part of it, I have to be a part of the community that's called the church. Amen. We need each other. We need each other because we need to be in a loving fellowship with people who are like-minded, people who will believe in us, people who will hold us accountable. That's what the church is all about. That's why Jesus established the church, that together we might become a community where we love and believe and trust, and that kind of participation is absolutely essential to growth in Christ-likeness. And I can linger there because there are a lot of people today who are saying, I, I'm spiritual, but I'm not, I'm not a part of the church, the organized church. Well, the church is the visible presence of Jesus in the world, and you cannot separate yourself from the church. You might want to say, I am the church, and in a sense you are, but we all need the church. Well, let me hasten. The relationship is built on trust. Any relationship is built on trust. Number eight, and I've learned that Jesus can always be trusted. When you talk about trust, we're talking about the doctrine of Christian assurance. And um, John Wesley made much of the witness of the Spirit. You may recall that. And in that, he said, the testimony of the Spirit is an inward impression on the soul whereby the Spirit of God directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus Christ has loved me and given himself for me, that all of my sins are blotted out, and I, even I, am reconciled to God. <laughs> wow, what great truth, biblical truth, the Spirit witnessing with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Amen. Well, Wesley did a little thinking and elaborating on that subject over time. For me personally, there's a great mystery about the doctrine of Christian assurance, and specifically even about the witness of the Spirit. 
For me, it's kind of like the ebb and flow of the tides in the ocean. Sometimes that tide comes rushing into my heart, and it's there, it lingers, and I rejoice and thank God that the Spirit is witnessing with my spirit. But sometimes the tide is out. And those are the testing times. Those are the times that prove what we're made of or what God has made us to be. And I think I could even testify that across these years the tide has probably been out more than it's been in. So when the inner witness of the Spirit is clear and strong, obviously we rejoice, but when the spiritual tide is out and the witness seems absent, I've learned to trust by resting in the authority of God's written Word. I believe in the authority of this book. This is the book of God. It is my guide. It brings me comfort when I need it. It brings me direction when I need it. It brings me assurance when I need it. Martin Luther, these lines were credited to him. I, I'm not sure that he actually wrote these lines. They rhyme beautifully in the English, and of course he wrote in German. But uh, he said, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant or my authority is the Word of God. Naught else is worth believing. Though all my soul should feel condemned for want or lack of some sweet token, I know one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. So I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all earth shall pass away, his word will stand forever. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. When the tide is out and the Spirit is not rushing into my life, what do I have to stand upon? I have the written Word of God to stand upon. That is my authority. And I think I'm learning more and more about how to trust Jesus and His Word for every need in my life. I, uh, I'm a great fan of Brennan Manning. Some of you have read maybe some of Brendan Manning's book. He is a Roman Catholic brother of mine. I was president of Point Loma for 14 years, Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, and I always believed that every generation of students had the right to experience at least one time while they were there an unmistakable manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I must tell you, the holiest moment we had while I was on that campus came when Brennan Manning preached in chapel. <laughs> and from everywhere, kids, faculty, board of trustees happened to be there that morning. It was like a holy hush came over us. I learned from that Roman Catholic brother. A lot of his wonderful books you would like to know and read and study and preach. Henri now and another Catholic brother was a good friend of his. And, and Manning wrote a book on trust. And he said, after, after uh, um, Nowen died, I read his last book. It was published after his death. And he said, I was intrigued by it because he was forever writing about faith and faith and faith and, and love and occasionally trust. But in the last book he wrote, all I could see throughout, and I don't remember the numbers, but he said I counted again and again how often he used the word trust. 
And from that, Manning said, I've come to believe that to look in God's face and say, I trust you, probably means more to him than to say, I love you. I kind of like that, thinking about that. <laughs> and I'll tell you for sure, I've learned that Jesus can be trusted in every context, all the time. He will not fail. Hallelujah. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's my last point. The relationship is forever. To die is gain. What does that mean? Oh, not much. Not much. Just means eternal life. <laughs> it just means eternal reunions with those who've gone on before us. It means new heavens, new earth, new body, and best of all, it means Jesus. Jesus forever. For me to live is Christ here and now. But I believe that with ever-deepening measure beyond these finite capabilities of mine, of mine to even begin to imagine, He will be my life for all eternity. Amen. <laughs> what a lovely thought. Beyond any question, the greatest thing that's happened to me in this world is Jesus. And to think that you and me and all of the other believers across these long centuries of time, we will be in his presence. He will be our life for all eternity. What a thought. What a hope. I cannot imagine anything more desirable than that. Can you? Wow. Do you ever think about that moment when you'll see him for the very first time? I mean, <laughs> we walk by faith and suddenly we'll see him. Remember Isaiah said, oh, the old King James in my mind, there's no form nor comeliness we should desire him. Hath no beauty about him that we should desire him. One of the great German Christians or, or Russian Christians uh, several centuries back told about standing in church one day and suddenly feeling a presence beside him. And it was a holy moment. He said, I was afraid to even look, but suddenly, slowly, I turned and looked, and I saw him. And he said, his was a face like all men's faces. <laughs> wow, why not? Fully man. Just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven. Of touching a hand and finding it God's. Of breathing new air and finding it celestial. Of waking up in glory and finding it home. <laughs> glory be to God. Hey, do you know this song, this chorus? Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by His grace I shall look on His face.
face that will be glory be glory for me for me to live is Christ and to die is gain well that's this is the holiness in which I believe and the holiness about which I'm very, very deeply convicted. It's all about Jesus, the one from whom I've come, the one to whom they, I will go, and that will be forever, and the one with whom I live in vital relationship this very moment. Amen. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the good word for tonight. God bless you. Have a good rest of the evening.